The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation 20. We are trying to tread these weeks where very few are willing to go. I know a handful of pastors who have opened up the book of Revelation to preach through it, and they'll say, we're going to cover the letters to the seven churches, and then they move on. We're just jumping right into this question of the millennium because Isaiah took us there, and Among our church leadership, these are the two most common views. The historic premillennial view that the church age is happening right now since the first appearing of Christ. Things are bad in pockets around the globe, but things are going to culminate in a more intense tribulation which will result in Christ's coming, putting an initial end to evil, inaugurating a extended period called the millennium. A thousand years isn't necessarily um, understood by most historic premillennialists to be a, a designated time period per se, but the idea is that it's symbolic for an extended time where Christ will reign on earth, where Satan will be bound, and then at the end he will come out and the final battle will happen and then the last judgment. In contrast, the other view is that the millennium is right now. That the, we could call it a realized millennium, where Jesus is already reigning right now, and that His people are united with Him. The tribulation still has pockets, but will culminate in a global battle And in the final minute, Christ will return with the only thing to follow being new heavens and new earth. And because our focus this semester is Isaiah, and this is somewhat of a a derail, but I I thought it was worth it because you don't hear this kind of teaching on this topic too often. Um, I'm arguing why I think both Isaiah and the book of Revelation affirm this view, the bottom view. And today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into it. Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 for now, maybe 1 through 10. And then I'll give my thesis and we'll dive into looking at verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, to the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into a pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and after that. He must be released for a little while. 
another portrait of what's happening during that thousand-year period. Not only is the serpent bound, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority, the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan was re- will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the prophet were. Or where also the beast and the prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. The word of the Lord. Here's my thesis. The millennium is realized during the church age as God limits Satan's deceptive powers and lets deceased Christians reign with Christ in heaven. The millennium began at Christ's resurrection and Pentecost and is concluded by a resurgence of Satan and his servants' deceptive assault against the church, followed by their defeat and eternal judgment. All right. It was supposed to come out in layers, but I must have done something wrong. Um, Let's see. Yeah, I don't get it. So the the temporary binding of Satan, that's what we're focused on right now. This idea that the angel, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the chain, sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Now, the question at hand is, can we say that Satan is somehow bound in the church age? I mean, is that a legitimate thought? That right now, Satan is bound? And what I want to say is, we have to consider how this age compares to the thousands of years prior to the coming of Christ. What was happening then with respect to deception, darkness, How many were actually pursuing God versus not pursuing God? How broadly the people of God had spread throughout the world versus how the church is being preserved and expanding. Here's the Isaiah text. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. Those that are high, like the serpent himself, Isaiah 27.1, and the kings of earth that throughout the Old Testament period were constantly against God's people. And then most of God's people themselves were rebel rather than remnant. 
They'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they'll be punished. Here we read, the angel had in his hand the key to the abyss. And Satan was seized, bound for a thousand years, thrown into this abyss, and shut up. So the abyss, as I understand it from the book of Revelation, is the spiritual sphere where Satan operates. That is not heaven. The purpose... Huh. I hope this isn't all like that. The purpose. Why? Why does it say that Satan is bound according to verse 3? What does it specifically say? So that he won't deceive the nations. Deception of the nations apparently is happening significantly until this point. And all of a sudden, Satan is held back, and now the nations are not deceived. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, look with me up at chapter 19. Verse 19, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make the war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. In verse 11, Christ appears. He's called faithful and true. Verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. Prophets proclaim things that lead people astray. The false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Okay, so notice that the beast, who is the dragon's henchman in the book of Revelation, the beast has been able to deceive some, but not all. There's some who have the mark of the beast, who have identified with him, his mark on their hands and his mark between their eyes. And last week I identified how this is about where is your authority, where does it lie? Whose name do you bear? Who's your king? Do you bear the name of Yahweh? So that it's His name. Yahweh. Yahweh. Our God is Yahweh. Yahweh is one. You shall bind these, this commandment, as a sign on your hand, and it shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Do you bear His name? Don't bear the name of the Lord in vain. That's the third commandment, as I number the Ten Commandments. Third commandment, don't bear His name in vain. If you do bear His name in vain, you'll be judged. Claiming, yes, I'm a follower of the Lord, and yet you're living like the devil. Sin, rather than sanctification identifies your life, your thought, versus those who are on the side of the devil and their deeds, their hands, and their eyes, their perception is all in alignment with someone other than God ruling and reigning on the throne of their hearts. So that he might deceive 
the nations. That's what he's being held back from, from this period of deception. And what I want to argue is that, number one, in Christ's first coming, the past age of deception has been temporarily overcome. Notice how Paul talks. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. But not anymore. Now, there's a work of God moving from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Disciples are being made of the nations. The times of, in, the times of ignorance, God overlooked that period before now. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. We don't see that type of missional activity in the Old Testament at all. But now we do. While Satan controls the sphere of earth, hear that, I'm going to argue that the abyss is the sphere of earth. And Satan controls it, but not completely, because the church is here. While Satan controls the sphere of earth, Christ is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has even authority over the devil today. And he's using the church to make disciples, and this Jesus protects the saints. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now make disciples. That's what we hear. That type of discipleship was not anything that was operative before Christ's appearing on a global level. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, O Father, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Jesus protecting his disciples. And not one of them has been lost except... Judas, the son of destruction, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is Jesus' role. He's a protector of his own. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that is Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's right now. Right now, the evil one cannot have those whom Christ has claimed. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, providing a protection around our own. How did Paul talk here? You used to be dead in your present in this present age, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Those who bear the mark of the beast. That's how John would talk about it in Revelation. Those who are the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest. What does that suggest? Even though controlled by the devil, underneath the wrath of God, he is the supreme sovereign over all. And he will hold both the devil and all those following him guilty. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive, for by grace we are saved. That's where we are today. 
alive in Christ, not dead any longer. In his first crumbing, Christ bound or cast out Satan. Look at these texts. Jesus is ministering. Unlike any time in history, what does he do? He shows up and he begins to identify demons and they identify him. They call him the very son of God. They recognize him and he casts them out. I live in Ham Lake. I've wondered why they call it Ham Lake. I've wondered if it was maybe someone saying, there was once a story about that in the Bible. Remember all those pigs that got the demons in them? <laughs> and they ran and they jumped into the lake. And I, I, like, I thought, why did you name it that? This is the idea. Now what does Jesus say? Jesus' response when the Pharisees say, you're Beelzebul. You yourself are connected with the devil. And Jesus says, wait a second, the devil can't cast out the devil. If, the spirit of, if by the Spirit of God it is that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Can I come in to the devil's sphere and actually reclaim those that were his? Take them out so that they're not his any longer? Can I claim his goods? Unless, what? He first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder the house. He sends out the 70. This isn't only for Jesus. He sends out the 70. They, the 72. They return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority. To do what? To do something that they never did in the past. Now, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall hurt you. That's the age we're living in now. The voice has come. This is triumphal entry. Jesus is readying for the cross where He will take on death and defeat it at its own gain. The voice has come out of heaven for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Right now, now is the ruler, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will what? Begin to draw all people in. They've been held captive by the prince of this world. But now, at the time of the cross, there's going to be an outbreaking of love of God, overwhelming the darkness. Light will just triumph and the church will advance. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood and he himself likewise partook of the same thing, Jesus partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now we're living in an age where people need not fear death if we're identified with the one who's conquered it already i like this text you were dead in your trespasses that's ephesians 2 dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh all you gentiles having no identification with god but now god has made alive together with him all of you having forgiven us all our trespasses 
How? By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. That he set aside, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He has already disarmed, hear that? He's disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He's put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Satan is bound. Isaiah, remember, we've already covered this in this book, he recognized that there was a global deception. That on on a global scale, not only in Israel, but among the nations, Satan had sway. It was not about God's kingdom. It was about man-made kingdoms as the deception worked its way across the sphere. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. Why? The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they, all of them, have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, and therefore all mankind is accountable to the living God. Therefore a curse devours the earth. Its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched. Few men are left. That's the image as he's looking ahead upon the future. All of the nations in catalog are underneath the curse of God because all have disobeyed him as king and followed another. But it's not just the nations. It's Israel. Go, say to this people, Isaiah... Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes. That's Isaiah chapter 6. That's his mission. It's a mission of keep living in the dark. It's a mission of identifying their living in separation from God. How long, O Lord, will this be this way? Until the exile is over and the little shoot of Jesse rises. That's when things will change. When you'll move from the age of darkness into the age of light. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes. He's covered your heads. The vision of all this All that I'm saying to you in Isaiah, all this book of the Old Testament, for an extended season, it was like a closed book. When men give it to one who can read, saying, here, read what Isaiah has said, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I can't read. The the point here is that The Old Testament ultimately was not written for the people in Isaiah's day. It was written for us. That's what Paul says, upon whom the end of the ages has come. It was written in a period of deception, a period of darkness. It was like a closed book to them. But the day was envisioned when something different would happen. Isaiah anticipates a day when eyes would see, when deception would be pushed aside, when the nations would gather to God and to His Messiah. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. 
And now go, write it before them on a tablet, inscribe it in a book. That's what we have, that's what we call the book of Isaiah. Write it down, why? That it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Isaiah is Christian scripture. It was written for the age when Satan would be bound and all of a sudden eyes would be opened and people would understand. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that all shall flow to the house of the Lord. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Notice, for out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What was a closed book is now an open book in the latter days, and it's going to draw in the nations in a way that none of them had connection with the Word of God. Not in Israel, not beyond the borders of Israel. But now, the vision is, the Messiah will come, and the Word of the Lord will go forth, and now the nations are going to be drawn in. Isaiah 11, in the Greek translation, words it this way, There shall be on that day the root of Jesse, even the one who stands up to rule the nations. Nations shall hope in him, and his rest shall be honor. This root of Jesse is the child king of chapter 9, who enters in to the darkness bringing light. Upon Galilee of the Gentiles, a light is dawned. Nazareth in Zebulun. Capernaum in Naphtali. These small places, Pastor Jason mentioned Mark chapter 1, Nazareth, Galilee, I think it has Isaiah 9 actually in the background. That's why it's mentioned. The first location in the northern kingdom where the Assyrians were told in the book of 2 Kings came and trampled. And now a light has dawned and age is changing. Darkness is being pushed back, withheld, so that a new garden might start to sprout. Light is shining and it's expanding from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now this text right here in Isaiah 11.10 which talks about this is the very passage that we, we spent several weeks on. The Spirit of the Lord will come and empower Him. The Spirit-empowered King who will work in justice. He will be raised up. 11.10 in the English in the Masoretic Hebrew text Actually, said this is the text that says he'll raise up as a banner, as a signal for the nations. But the Greek translator rendered it rule the nations. And then right after this, it goes on to talk about the second exodus. Remember that? Second exodus? Better than the first one? The first one took them out of physical slavery to Pharaoh. The second exodus out of spiritual bondage to sin. And it'll be led by this root of Jesse. He's the first sprout of the new creational Garden of Eden. He's going to be lifted up as a banner. He's going to rule the nations. They're going to gather to him. Paul says, this is now. Not 
in the future. The reign of this spirit-empowered king is already. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. That's Isaiah's favorite term for the Messiah. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Isaiah 11. And Paul would have us understand that Isaiah's vision of this future elevation of the reign of Christ and the union of the nations with Him is already. That this is the period when the eyes will see, when the deception is pushed back. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. I anticipate Pastor Jason, as he walks through Mark, is going to go back to Isaiah He started it today. We saw our first quotation straight out of Isaiah, chapter 42. This is Isaiah 52. Sorry, I said Isaiah 42. Isaiah 40. That's the first good news gospel text in Isaiah. This is the second one. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness, declaring, quotations, here's the news, headline, our God reigns. And Paul cites this text as something that is already now. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved right now. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is now. This is the global mission of the church that Isaiah is envisioning. Fear not, for I am with you. I'll bring you or offspring from the east, from the west. I will gather you. I'll say to the north, give up to the south. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 52 Right after the passage that we just read about good news. The Lord has barred His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Both of these texts are then brought together by Paul right here. We are the temple of the living God today. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. All of these texts are just building on Isaiah and and identifying that what Isaiah is talking about, the age when the deceiver will be pushed back, the age when eyes will be opened, when the nations will come to God, is already. In our text, it says, I saw thrones, seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, who had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Not everyone is alive. No, the dead didn't come to life until after the thousand years. Let me just pause right there. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with him in the air to meet the Lord in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's resurrection. The... We want to be able to bring that text in association with this text. There's a group that is dead and not coming to life until the thousand years were ended. They're the rebels of God. The first resurrection, though, relates to those who are alive with Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God, of Christ. They'll reign with Him for a thousand years. Yes? The question is, if we are talking about the church age, we have people dying at different spots during the church age. And is it legitimate to say they reigned with Christ a thousand years if some of them die 20 years before he actually returns again, and some of them died 2,000 years before he actually returns again? Is it legitimate to say they reigned with Christ a thousand years? And that's, that's a fair question. My initial response that comes to my mind is that we, if we're thinking about the church as the body of Christ, as an entity, then even though individuals might not be enjoying that reign as dead people for the whole time, they are the church itself is enjoying the with life with Christ for the reign the whole time. The second thing that I'm going to draw attention to is that in a very real sense, the resurrection has, in a very real sense, already happened even for us, the first resurrection. As we're going to see, and yet our bodies are holding our conscious state here. But in a very real sense, our souls are already with Christ. And there... Um, so regardless of where one dies on the spectrum, it's where one starts to live. And remember, it's the resurrection of Christ that marks all of our resurrections. We're in Christ, and therefore, we only our, our resurrection is counted from where He rose. Everyone who is saved, it's marked by His resurrection. We're in Him. That's where the reign of Christ starts, and all in Him, their reign starts there. Right. 
So the question was, how is what's happening now different from the days of Job, where Satan was also still not in total control, but where he could only go as far as God let him go? Great question. So the question is, how does that compare to today? A couple things I draw attention to. Job begins after the initial introduction where we first get a glimpse of what's taking place in the heavenlies. It says there was a day when all the sons of God would gather and Satan was also there. Remember that? Where is that? They would gather where? Where were they gathering in the beginning of Job? In the heavenly court before the throne of God. And Satan is there as the constant accuser. And that accusatory role finds a climax in Zechariah chapter 3. There's a vision in Zechariah chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can. Where Zechariah sees... Joshua the high priest, the priest represents the people. Joshua the high priest standing before God, and Joshua's in filthy rags because it represents that the people are filthy in sin. And Satan is there with his finger pointed at the high priest, accusing him. Guilty, guilty. How dare you, in my as I understand what's going on in Zephaniah, how dare you let there be people like Job? He too is a sinner. And Satan was there all that time, accusing, accusing, accusing. And he knew full well that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. There's sacrifice in the beginning of Job too. He offers sacrifices of priestly father on behalf of his children's sins. And Satan is able to accuse. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And what God says in Zechariah chapter 3 is, Shut your mouth. Bring out a clean turban. A clean garment. Dress the priest in a clean outfit. Know this, Zechariah, I'm sorry, Joshua, you and all of your partners, the other priests, he says explicitly, are but a sign. A pointer to what? I will raise up, he says, my servant, the branch. And on a single day, I will wipe away all the iniquity of the land. What I see happening there is what Paul refers to in, Revelation, in, in Romans chapter 3 when he says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified only by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, period. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God put Jesus forward as a wrath-turning sacrifice. A propitiation. That He might turn the wrath of God away. 
and it's received by faith. Now notice what it says next. Romans 3, 25 and 26. God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice in order to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of all who believe. What does that suggest? There was a question up until Jesus came whether God could be just in saving people like Job. And because of that, Satan, up until this point, was still in heaven accusing, accusing, accusing every person whom was saved. Because God was unjustified to save through the blood of bulls and goats. But God sends forth Jesus in order to show at the proper time that He is both just and the justifier of all who believe. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. Sorry. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of all who believed. And in this moment, I believe the accusatory power of Satan was no more. And he is thrown out of the heavenly court. He is no longer able to be there like he was in the days of Job. Like he was in the days of Zechariah. Because Christ has come. And the accusatory role of the serpent is no more. Now, I have... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a leap to try to help you here. If I can get a couple helpers. Because I believe that um, Revelation 12 actually parallels Revelation 20, and it actually speaks directly to the question you're raising. It, and it'll give commentary, I believe, on our, on our interpretation of Revelation 20. And so I wanna, I'm going to walk through this, but there were a couple questions. So, Ian, you had the first question, and then you, the question was, do I believe that the binding of Satan was primarily a judicial gagging of Satan from his accusatory role? I think that that is a central part of his binding. But there is a locative shift, location. He is no longer able to be in the heavenly court. He has been cast down and he is doing a work on this planet, but his accusatory role is no longer powerful. It's inept. He can't bring it to, to God anymore because God has proven that he is just and the justifier. So that now we can say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins. Indeed, he would be unjust to not forgive us our sins in light of what Christ has done. All who identify with Jesus by faith receive a just sentence simply by declaration. But the sphere of his principal activity is not accuser in heaven. It is worker on earth, and yet he, he, he holds no sway. All of a sudden, by faith, people can unite with Christ, and the chains are broken. From their lives. He is, he is right now here working and yet unable to stop the advance of the kingdom. He can kill, but he can only kill the body. 
He cannot defeat the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. That's where we're at right now. We have shift from the future has come into the present. He has been tossed to earth. He's bound. He's the strong man who's been bound. And now the reign of Christ is on the move. And with that comes an unbelievable power for Christians like Joel to look death in the eye and keep trusting in a very unique way. In a unique way that the Old Testament saints never had. There was an eye toward hope. But now we get to look back and place our feet on a, a, an empty tomb, on an empty cross that was purchased for us, and we have a level of hope that is incomparable to anything prior to this age. Because God has worked through His Son, and this Son is now reigning in heaven right now, seated at the Father's right hand. He obeyed to the point of death, even death and a cross. Now, God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every name. That's where He is right now. And that is a distinctive hope that was not part in the same way of all previous times. When we say make disciples of all the nations... We don't mean universalism. It's not going to happen. It's a recognition that among all the peoples of the planet, God is going to claim some for His own. In the same way, I think we would read Revelation 20, and we're going to get a commentary in Revelation 12, but I think we would read Revelation 20 in saying, when it says that He's not able to deceive the nations... What it means is that there are peoples from every nation that are not deceived. That, that there has been a movement in order to make possible Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, where there are people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation from around the globe, all the families of the earth. The, so, so what I'm saying is that his being bound in the pit, I think we're going to see, according to Revelation 12, is a partial binding so that the gospel can advance among all the nations in a way it was never happening. It was only hoped for. It was good news hoped for. The day when the light would finally shine. And it doesn't shine at all in the Old Testament. They're waiting, longing. They are getting glimpses of it through the written word. Some of them are awakened to it. Through the written word, most of them are blind, they can't see it, but that, those glimpses in the written word are creating desire. But they are looking ahead so that um, Peter can say, through the prophets, these prophets of old searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person and time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was told them that they were serving not themselves, but us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. 
1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. They recognized they were longing for something. Or the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. They died in faith, longing to see what was happening today. So we're going to go to chapter 12, and I, I hope I'll be able to show you that I think there's a parallel between these two and that we can use 12 to read 20. And in 12, we're going to see much more that the binding of Satan must be understood as a partial binding because when he's cast to the earth, the earth is warned, woe to you, because it's going to get really hard. We will receive a bodily resurrection. That's coming. And I'm going to point to those scriptures. But that would be called the second resurrection. Notice here, it says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. He's not seeing bodies with heads cut off. He's seeing souls, real persons who are in the very presence of Christ. But then there's a group that are not in Christ, that are still, they're, they're still in the ground. I'm going to talk about the first and second resurrections and the first and second deaths. He offers both. There's the martyrs who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and then there is also those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. There's both groups there. There's actual martyrs, and then there's those who, like Joel, persevered to the very end, trusting in Jesus. So we'll just, let's just see. First off, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The present reign of deceased Christians with Jesus. That's how I'm understanding that first resurrection. At one level, all saints have experienced the resurrection and our spirit is in Christ right now. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism already in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life already. For if we've been united with Him in His death, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. At some level, this resurrection is already being tasted as we walk in the newness of life. And yet, it's a spiritual awakening right now, and our bodies are still decaying. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. He raised us right now with, up with Jesus. And he, right now we're seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now. You and I. If then you've been raised with Christ, notice past tense, Seek the things that are above while you're still on earth. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So I say at one level, all saints have experienced the resurrection and our spirit is in Christ already. The church was purchased. And it's happened. That, that would be the framework that Paul has. But he also has another framework. At another level, we're still awaiting to be with Jesus, and this will happen at our, physical at our physical death. Notice, our physical death is the first death. Everyone, believer and non-believer alike, experience the first death, unless we're here when Jesus returns. 
But I'm proposing that only the believers experience the first resurrection. And it's spiritual. The second resurrection is experienced by both believers and non-believers alike. And it's physical. But then the second death is only experienced by non-believers and it's spiritual. First resurrection is spiritual. Second death is spiritual. First resurrection only experienced by believers. Second death only experienced by non-believers. Now, the Lord is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to Him. I'm not the God of... I mean, Jesus says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God. That, that is, they're alive. They're alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not in the ground. Their bodies are there, still there. But their souls are alive. Paul says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. That's an immediate Intermediate state is what I'm talking about. There's an intermediate state for believers, but not for non-believers. That to die is to be raised spiritually. We have a spiritual death, and in that sense, we're already raised spiritually, but the first death is a physical death. That's, that's what it points to. And what I'm saying is that the, for the believer, the physical death, the very first physical death, immediately transfers us to Christ. So it's, it's like in the Chronicles of Narnia in the seventh book. At the beginning of the story, we learn that the kids are on a train. And at the end of the story, we find out that the way that they actually arrived in that, what is it, like a little shack that is actually the doorway into the ultimate Narnia. The way they arrived is because they died. The train got in an accident, and all the kids were killed immediately. They were transported. Their spirits were alive with Christ. Paul says, we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. He understands that it will happen immediately. If we have died with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure, endure, that's perseverance, all the way up to the end, like Joel, we will reign with Him. The one who conquers, that language of endurance in 2 Timothy 2 is the language of conquering in Revelation 2. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. Until the end where? until the end of his life, who does not give in to the work of the beast. In this age of, it's beastly. The kingdoms of earth are beastly, but they cannot overpower the Christian. They cannot hold us. I think that's the vision of Revelation. They can't hold us today. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations. He will rule them with an iron rod when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is Jesus talking. And when he says, You'll, they will rule them, or the one who conquers will rule them with an iron rod, 
That is exactly what we will see, it looks like the beginning of next week, we'll see opens Revelation 12. But there it's not the saints who rule with an iron rod. It is Jesus himself who rules with an iron rod. And that's straight out of Revelation, uh, Psalm chapter 2, where it says, Behold, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. In the day when the sun appears, and Paul in Acts 13 quotes Psalm 2-7 and says that's the resurrection. On the day when the sun appears, God will give the nations as his inheritance and he will rule them with an iron rod. And now those who die, who persevere in Christ all the way to the end of their lives, in this age, is what I, how I'm understanding this, in this age will all of a sudden be transferred to sit on the throne with Jesus and will rule with him with an iron rod over the nations. We will rule with Christ. And Joel is right now. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I already passed out Revelation 12, but we don't have time to go to that, so next week we'll start there. Let's just close today in Revelation 7. Just turn in your Bibles to Revelation 7. And as you do, I'm just going to, let me give just a side parenthesis. Let me go over here. I had to talk a little fast today to get through material. And a lot of what I've said is probably brand new for most. As I said last week, you don't, that this is a third tier, not a top tier issue. If you come into the triage unit of Bethlehem Baptist Church, this is not a level three, oh look, that guy's holding his head in his hand. We better take care of him now. This is more like, oh look, he lost a fingernail. What we're wrestling with right now, the millennium, is not of first importance. It's all important. The gospel is of first importance. This relates to the gospel because Jesus is the one who secures all of it for us. But don't be overwhelmed. Don't let yourself feel like he just... Or, or also, don't feel like I disagree with him, therefore I'm never going to come back. This, we're just taking two weeks. This is not where we normally spend our time. We're going to get right back into Isaiah and walk through the servant texts. Lord willing, when I get back from Ethiopia, that's where we're going to go. The gospel in Isaiah, but Isaiah pulled us in, and that's why we're here. Look with me now as we close our day at Revelation 7. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, there was a multitude that no one could number from every nation. Deception overcome. From every nation, from all families, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, 
crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. And what they were saying was, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? This this great multitude clothed in white. Who are these ones in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know who they are. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a heavenly vision, not an earthly one. I think it's now. We're not expecting to be in heaven forever. We're expecting a new earth with Christ reigning bodily and we having brand new bodies as well. This vision will become reality on earth. But what he's seeing here is part of his his vision. Who are these? They're the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That reality will come to earth. We're wrestling these two, three weeks with timing. But I think, I, I think this is now and it will only continue when the Jerusalem that is above becomes the Jerusalem that is on earth. But today, Jerusalem is already our mother. Galatians chapter 4, 25. Today, we have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Already! Hebrews chapter 12. And there are those who endured to the end who are already enjoying this reality. No more hunger, no more tears, no more thirst. Father, we ask that you'd go before us. I pray that we would be Bereans and search diligently your word I pray that you would let no one have tension carried in their soul over such things, at least toward other people. May it push us all deeper in and higher up. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu.
www.ucla.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.